Let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when I ask you what uh, a Christian is? Now, let me prime the pump for a moment. Certain words trigger certain thoughts. And so let me ask you, uh, what comes to mind when you hear the word politician? The good, bad, and the ugly, perhaps. What comes to mind when I say CrossFit fanatic? It's obviously people outside of this building. All right. What if I say uh, millennial? A millennial. There are different thoughts there. How about Star Wars? Some of you thought of the newer uh, versions, and some of you thought of the 1970 uh, and early 80 versions. We won't debate today which one were better, but I do appreciate my childhood. Um, well, what comes to mind when I say Alabama fan? I don't think Sam, is Sam in here? No. What, what comes to mind when you think of an Alabama fan? You know, um, it doesn't matter what it is. If you put a, a label on something, you have thoughts about it, either positive, negative, or you just completely ignore something. So let me go back to the question. What do you think of when you hear the term Christian? Perhaps some of you are a, a Christian. You would say, yes, I'm a Christian. And others, you know, who are watching or maybe sitting in here going, well, I'm certainly not a Christian, and I know that. George Barna and his, his research uh, uh, organization did a study uh, several years ago on, on non-Christians' views of the term Christian and what they think of Christians. Oh, I see Sam back there. I'm sorry. Yep, Alabama fan. I didn't recognize you without all your A and red stuff on. All right. Um, so this is what Barna uh, discovered, his organization discovered. From non-believers, what do they think of Christians? 91% of them said Christians are anti-homosexual. 87% said they are judgmental. 85% said Christians are hypocritical. 78% called us old-fashioned. 75% said we're too political. 72% said they are out of touch with reality. 70% said Christians are insensitive to others. 68% said Christians are boring. Oh. Let me tell you, this is a view that non-believers have of Christians because whatever they have seen through, through you know, media or culture or even in your own neighborhood, this is their perspective, whether it's accurate or not. And some of the things that were mentioned, I'm against as well. I stand firmly against homosexuality, but I stand for the homosexual who needs Jesus. I, I am not for us being insensitive to others. We ought to love people as Jesus loved them, though he never conceded his holiness or the beliefs that the scriptures teach us. Perhaps we, we, we need to do a little better in how we communicate so that Christian, Christianity would be seen in the proper light. You actually know in the first century people weren't known as Christians. or they, That's not what they called themselves. That's what we know as the term. But that's not what first century believers were known as. They were known as disciples. The term Christian was actually a derogatory term used by non-believers to cast at them. But only three times in the New Testament is the word Christian used of believers of Christ. They were calling, you're just a little Christ, you know, as a negative term. The, the, the term that they were known as and what they called each other were disciples. 
281 times in the New Testament, the believers are known as disciples. And what is a disciple? A follower of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting we leave here this, this day and, and tell our neighbors we're not Christians anymore. We are Christians. But perhaps the world doesn't understand what a Christian is because we have so many who proclaim that they're Christians, but they're not really disciples or followers of Jesus. They look nothing like Jesus. They don't have a pursuit of Jesus. They have a label because we live in America that we're basically a Christian nation, so therefore I'm a Christian. I vote. I pay my taxes. I'm a fairly good person. But they know nothing about Jesus other than what they learned as a seven-year-old at Bible school, but they have not pursued him since. We need to really consider what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in our day? For if we're ever going to reach people for Jesus, we ought to know who we're following and inviting people to follow. Like Paul said, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. We have to evaluate our own lives. How are we following Jesus? Now, today I want to bring you to the text. We'll look at just a few verses here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you today, and you don't scroll on your phone to find the Bible, then I want to encourage you to pick up the Pew Bible in front of you, the black little Bible there, and you can turn to page 759, 759 in the Pew Bible. I want to just look at just one little picture, snapshot here, of Jesus inviting others to follow him, and, and he tells them what he's going to make them into. So in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18, let me read this out aloud for us. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. This is Jesus who's walking, starting his ministry, beginning to call people to follow him. He says he saw two brothers, uh, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In verse 20, it goes on. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Mending their nets, he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, do you, do you see how odd this picture is? I know you read the scripture, you think, oh yeah, well, Jesus came out, he said, come on, and they just, they picked up and just left. I find this a little odd. These men are working, they're with their father, and, and some random guy in a, in a robe just comes up and says, hey, follow me, we're leaving. And, and it's almost like he had some kind of Jedi mind trick on him. You're going to follow me. Oh, yes, we'll follow you. I mean, what is this? If, if some random dude just walked up to you, you're out there in the yard, you're doing some work, and, and, and some guy comes up and he's in a robe and he says, hey, Randy, follow me. Maybe you've heard of this guy, maybe you've seen him somewhere, but would you just pick up and walk away from, from your business at that moment to walk away and just follow? I, I find it odd Unless you understand a little bit of the historical context, if they understood kind of, not that Jesus was God, I don't think they had that full picture, but there was something special about Jesus that they were willing to pick up and walk away. So I want to kind of explore that for a few moments to give you an understanding of why someone would ever leave their life as they know it and follow Jesus completely. Peter, James, 
all of these, these individuals in this picture were, were Jewish. And they, like every other Hebrew boy, had to go to Jewish school, Hebrew school, when they were five years old. If you were a devout uh, Jewish family, you would send your, your boys to Torah school. The first five books of the Bible were the Torah, the, the law. And so you would, you would go to school from five to about ten. Where Not that you wouldn't be working with your dad, but in that young age, you would learn the Torah and, and memorize that. The first few days of class, what they would do is they began to read from the Torah. They would tip, um, their, uh, uh, tip a finger in, in some honey and put it on their tongue. And every time uh, they would be listening to scriptures, they would get more honey. And, and the historic, history says that that this was the first time they've ever tasted something sweet. So guess what they're associating with this? When we read the Bible, it's going to taste good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See, this is how a Hebrew would think. So they go, oh, we want more of the Bible. We want more of the Torah to be understood. So they spend their years doing this. By the time they were about 10 years old, there were some boys who just didn't make it. They weren't good at school. They, they just couldn't do it. And so about the top 20% of the class would get to remain in their studies. The rest would just be sent home. Just learn the trade of your, of your family so that you'll be able to survive. But you realize in this day, to, to be considered worthy to continue on in the studies would, would provide you a way to become a scribe or a Pharisee, someone of the, the religious elite. And as a Jewish person, that was the highest calling you could have in your life. To be a part of the religious establishment. Now today, everybody wants to be a, 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 you know, a, a music artist or a sports star or something. They, they want to be big and that kind of thing. But in, that's not the Hebrew days. It was how can my son would be considered worthy to, to follow in God's path? When 10, 20, only 20% would make it. And they would begin to study and memorize and learn Joshua through Malachi. Learn the rest of the Old Testament. By the age of 17, there was another cut, and only the, the best of the best uh, got to uh, then could be considered what is a Talmud, a disciple of a rabbi. If you made it to 17 and you were still in the, in the program, if you will, then you would be uh, allowed to go and seek a rabbi to, to ask his permission to follow him, to, to learn from him. To sit at his feet and just soak in everything he has. And, and as a rabbi, he would begin to evaluate you whether you were worthy to follow him. Because it's not just about knowledge. You were really, as a Hebrew boy, going to learn the rabbi's ways, his, his mannerisms. So that he would be able to pass on to that young individual a life that he could live out for the glory of God. What an incredible position. And not every Talmud, every, every Hebrew boy could find a rabbi who was willing to take him on. So even at that, there would be a, another cut from the team. What an incredible position these young men had. To be considered worthy enough to be a Talmud, a, a disciple of a rabbi. The highest compliment given to a Talmud, this disciple, was the dust of your rabbi is all over you. Meaning you follow so closely behind him as he walks that the dust that is brought up from his feet just gets all over you. To be regarded as a, a great rabbi to follow, uh, there, were, there was a, a certain phrase, uh, one, a rabbi that had so much authority that he was very rare and unique. 
That Hebrew word is um, shmikah. Shmikah. Can you say that with me? Shmikah. You've been to Hebrew school today. That was a title or, 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 or a, a, a position that was only given to about 12 individuals in the first century. Meaning they were, they were rabbis, but these rabbis spoke with such authority, they were unique and different. To be regarded as a rabbi was shmikah. Two things had to be true. There had to be a credible, uh, some credible evidence that you've done some miracles. And that you, uh, shmikah had to be officially conferred upon you by two other rabbis with shmikah. So it was a fairly exclusive club, as you can imagine. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus, who knows the Torah, was so well versed at the age of 12, he sat in the temple and he corrected these rabbis. He spoke with authority. And they were amazed by this young man. Later in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished his sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had shmikah, authority. He was unique. He was different than, than the other rabbis they had heard. Not as their scribes. In Luke chapter 20, he was accused by the Pharisees. They said, tell us by what authority, or, or the word would have been, tell us by what shmikah you do these things, or who it is that gave you this shmikah. Because shmikah, that authority, could only be given by others who have that, that position. And who gave it to you? Because you speak as if you have that. Which infuriated them. But Jesus had the qualifications of being able to do miracles. And he certainly spoke with authority that they didn't understand. Now I want you to understand that this was a very uh, exclusive club. And Jesus has those characteristics. And Jesus now steps into this passage and it says, and while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. You notice this rabbi with Shmikah chooses Peter and Andrew. And the fact that they are fishermen tells you they were not the top of their class. Anybody can relate? I want you to let that sink in for a moment. When Jesus chose his squad to start a movement of the gospel, he did not select the best of the best. He chose those who dropped out. Those who were unworthy according to the other rabbis. So when he walks up to these individuals, it's very fascinating. In Hebrew culture, they had dropped out of, uh, out of school. And to even follow a rabbi, you had to get permission. You had to seek the rabbi out and beg of him, may I follow you? And many were declined, rejected. Reverse course now. Jesus, who has the highest of all authorities, walks up to these young men and said, I want you to follow me. You see the difference? Why did these boys leave? Why, why did the fathers give permission, if you will? Here is a rabbi with the highest of high authorities, and he has selected my son. This, this rabbi is selecting us to follow him. 
Nothing like dropping out of school and going, well, I'm not worthy. I don't know if I'll make anything. And then the top of the top comes up to you and says, I love you so much. I want you to follow me. How in the world would you reject that? This is how Jesus responds to people. He doesn't look for the top of the class. He, he doesn't look for the ability. Let me just say it this way. He looks for, are you available and willing to follow? When God calls you, it's not about your ability. It's always about your availability. He says, follow, and they did immediately. I like what John MacArthur says about Jesus' selection of the disciples here. John MacArthur says, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He goes on. He says, he passed over Herodias, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. It shows me a lot about when God's calling his army together to send them out. It's not about how great you are. It's about how great he is and what he can do through you. As we talk about this in just a few moments about who's your one and how, how we're going to pray for, invest in, and invite people to Jesus. You might be thinking, well, I don't know. I'm not like, I, I don't have an, a, a, a doctor of ministry. I, I, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Louis Palau. I'm not uh, anybody great out there. And you know, it's not about that. It never has been. When Jesus walked up to these young men, Peter was not the best of the best. No, he was a guy who had open mouth, insert foot. Let me do something stupid again. And Jesus still called him. I mean, half of his disciples were fishermen. Uh, another was an IRS agent. Another was a former terrorist. And we talk about Saul turning into Paul. Jesus chose the B team because his work in the world wouldn't come from their greatness. It would come from his greatness in them. People with a lot of talent and ability typically just get in the way because it becomes about them and not about Jesus. His power always works best in the weakest vessel. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, it says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, is, uh, there arise no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Who's humble enough that God would use them based on his power and not their own? We've got to stop making excuses that we're not able and start just laying our life on the line for him. The phrase was used years ago in my life. It's trite, but it's true. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So, are you available? Is God calling you from your padded potential sitting in your pew? He says in verse 19, follow me, he told them. It leads me to the second point here, that it's not about being first, it's only about being a follower. The normal way, as I said earlier, to be connected to a rabbi is to be at the top of your class and then pursue a rabbi. But Jesus flipped the process and came to them and sought them first. And I see in the scripture that, that we love him, could you finish the sentence with me? Because he loved us first. Jesus will always pursue us before we even know who he is. God is a great God. 
I'm thankful for my salvation, but I guarantee you it's because God pursued me. And it wasn't because of my greatness or, or anything I had to offer. It was because of his greatness, and he saw a broken individual, sinful, separated, and God loved me first and said, follow me. doesn't matter where you sit in this world or what your background and past has been. God forgives it all and empowers you for his purpose. It's just basically you say, I'm available. It's not about being first. It's about being a follower. Jesus came seeking when people weren't even looking. In this world, you may feel overwhelmed by opposition. But you can be confident that if God chooses you, God's going to see it through. It doesn't matter how big your obstacle it matters how big your God is, how much you trust him with the challenges of this life. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Listen, if you are Jesus' disciples, then he chose you to be a disciple. And there are more out there that need to hear the gospel that they would become available and desire to follow God. John chapter 15, verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Some of you are struggling right now in your life, and you don't have time to do anything but just try to make it through the day. Marriages are struggling, career, parenting, finances, all kinds of things. And, and listen, I, this is what I know. You can have confidence in the power of God. But oftentimes you will have lost your confidence that he chose you to do a good work through you in these areas and others. Sometimes we go, yeah, God is great, but does God even desire to work in me? I know that he can do it, but I'm not sure I can. Talked about this a little bit last week. Just where is your uh, confidence in? And if God says that he can do a great work in you, then let him. God can heal marriages. Do you agree with that? God can heal broken relationships. When you've lost it all, as long as you have God, you have all that you need. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 clearly states, I pray that you would memorize this verse. It's an encouragement to me often. He who began a good work in you, what? Will carry it on to completion. God doesn't stop what he has started. If he's called you to himself, he's going to continue to work through you for his glory and your joy. Jesus walked up to these men who were not the elite, but the lowly. And he said, follow me. That's our charge. To follow. Not to create, not to run ahead, not to say, God, look at what I'm doing over here. Just follow and do what you see him doing. His primary call on our lives is not for us to do something but to become something, become like him, to listen, to learn, to replicate what we see in, the, in his life and, and live that way out that it may influence others. To become like him, you have to get to know him. How do you get to know Jesus, the one you're following? He's not physically here on this planet today. He sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. But how do we learn to follow Jesus? Prayer and the word. It's the only two things that I know. Prayer and the word. You pray to him to surrender your life and to praise him and to, and to, to ask of him what only he can do. 
And you receive from him his word, his promises, the confidence that we can have, the instructions to do what he's called us to do. If we're not in the word, we're not following him. Some of you are really smart, and you can take a class without ever cracking the book open. You pass exams. I can read the whole thing, memorize it, and still fail sometimes. But some of you are just brilliant people. You don't have to read the book. You don't have to listen to lectures. Somehow you know it. You take the SAT uh, without even any practice. I failed it twice just for fun. Let me just guarantee you something. You will never follow Jesus unless you crack the book open and you read it. You meditate upon it. You study it. You let it become a part of you. And you, you look for all of him to do all of what he desires to do through you. Be in the word every day. And be surrendered to him in prayer. If you want your marriage to have some healing, get in the word together and seek God's will. If you want to really resonate in what God's doing in your future, what's this transition going to look like in your life as you move from one place to another, you move from one job to another, you move from one stage of life to another, you had kids at home, they've moved out. When you want to understand these transitions, read the Bible and pray and God will give you wisdom. It is a lamp, a light into our path. It's the direction we need to go. God will reveal to us through his word, by his Holy Spirit, so that we understand what he wants from us, and we just need to follow. My desire is that we learn to to witness to people, share the gospel, but let me tell you, you can never win somebody to Christ if you're not following the Christ that you desire for them to know. Sometimes we're the worst witnesses because we know a lot, but we don't follow. Are we Talmuds, followers, disciples of Jesus? It's not about being first, it's just being a follower It's also not about preservation. It's about pursuit. Look at verse 20 uh, through 22. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Do Do you see the significance of verse 22? I doubt you've memorized this at Awana. Immediately they left their boat and their father. They left their occupation and they left their comfort of the family. Because if Jesus isn't first, nothing else matters. There are some who will let their family keep them from serving the God that they love. There are times we say we're followers of Christ and then some type of of distortion takes place in distortion of the gospel, distortion of whatever, some, some wayward person, and you begin to shift your theological beliefs because of the sin of someone else. And God says, don't do that. Am I first in your life? Hold firm to the truth and love those who go wayward. Don't become like them. Love them through standing on the firm word of God, which you are following. Others Struggle with the financial situation, my occupation, my, my, my income, everything. And, and your work asks you to do something that you know is ungodly. Or, or maybe just, just mark this a little differently or, or do this a little differently. I mean, we're in tax season coming up. Scott can help you, by the way. Uh, Richard Turner can help you with your taxes. But listen to me. If you say, well, I want just a fudge here because, you know what, I don't really like what the government's doing with my money anyway. Let me just fudge here. Listen, if you are following God, you do those things right. But don't let anything distract you, disturb you, or destroy your following of God. 
We give him our lives and hearts first. You know, that's why when we give to God financially, it's out of the first fruits, not the leftovers. Because we love him because he loved us first. Look, at they're walking away because they are going to be disciples, followers, sacrificing it all for the love of God. He says, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. I love that phrase right in the middle. There's the following part. That's the initiation of our relationship. We just begin to follow. And then he says, I will make you, which is a sanctification process. We have a part to play, but it's surely him doing something in us. See, God didn't just want to come to us. He wanted to come in us and through us. He's doing something uh, uh, completely transformative in our lives. So every day, it's not about we were saved. It's that we're still being saved. Not in the process that we will lose our salvation. I don't believe that theology. But I believe salvation comes in three parts. We are saved positionally. We're being saved practically every day. Because every day I still struggle. Every day I still fight with the old nature I've got God's Holy Spirit in me, and there's a battle. But every day I'm being saved, and I'm overcoming the flesh. And then one day we will be saved. Glorification that we'll no longer struggle with any temptation or sin, any tears or, or challenges. All of that will be gone away. So I have been saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. And it says here that, that I will make you. God is doing something in us as we continue to follow. But what does he say? I will make you fish for people. This is the, the concept I see in here. It's not me, but we. When we have salvation in our sights, it's not about, oh, God has saved me. How wonderful. I can't wait to go to heaven. It's God has come to me. So there would be more of we. That he puts us in the family of God to be encouraged, loved, and, and supported. But he also says, it's not just about you. I didn't just come to you. I came to work through you so that more people would become a part of my family. That there are still more to be called for discipleship, for following, Talmids. Well, how were the others who aren't part of the family going to become part of the family? It's that we become fishermen. Fisherwomen. How do you prove that you're a disciple? John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. His final words to the disciples. As he was ascending to heaven, he said, You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and other most parts of the world. He, he told them that you're going to go and, and make disciples. You're a follower. Make some more followers as you preach the gospel, as you teach, and you baptize if you were to summarize Jesus' life and ministry here on this planet, I think Luke 19 summarizes it well. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Robert Coleman, I believe he passed away last year, wrote a book called The Master Plan for Evangelism. Great book. I tell you to pick it up. It, it's, it's fairly short. I think it's less than 100 pages. He says this in that book. He says, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings or training classes for Christian workers to do this job. No, individual women and men are God's 
method. God's plan for discipleship and evangelism is, is not something, but someone. God's method is always His people. That book was given out by Billy Graham to hundreds of thousands of people. Now, you think about that. Billy Graham had massive crusades, as you well know. Many people. But Billy Graham wanted people to know it's not about these big, massive groups that, 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 that we have that is the most effective at evangelism. The most effective method of evangelism is you as individuals taking the gospel to your circles of influence. Which leads me to the last concept, the last thought today. We saw this video, Johnny Hunt, who was the former pastor at uh, Woodstock First Baptist Church there in Georgia where I was living. I got to interact with Johnny on several occasions, and that guy is, uh, he loves the Lord, and he loves lost people. And he developed this thought concept. He challenged us years ago, uh, even before they put it into some kind of, you know, um, materials. He just said, you know, the, the, the world's massively filled with lost people, and it's overwhelming. But he says, what if every believer just started praying for at least one person? If you have that one person in your mind who you're praying for, you're investing time in, and you're inviting them to Jesus. Who is the one person that, that breaks your heart that they are wandering away from God and they need the gospel to save them? And so he gave us that challenge years ago. And I'm glad they put it together in, in some type of resources to, to distribute to the churches. But who is your one Today, when you came in, I hope that you got one of these bookmarks. There's also a booklet you can use. Uh, you can pick up on your way out if you haven't picked it up. It's just this little 30-day prayer guide, a devotional guide on how do I begin to pray for the one person in my life. You don't have to limit it to one person, certainly, but everybody ought to have at least one person. But if you have one of these bookmarks, this is what I'd like you to do. On one part of it, it's a tear-off. You can keep this part, but I'd love for you to turn this in. You can place it in one of the um, uh, deposit spots that we've got, or you can just personally hand it to me. It says, who's your one? And I would like you to write a name on there. Who is the one person? I'm going to collect a list of, uh, of names that I'm going to join you in praying for. This will not be a public list for the world to see, but it'll be one that I can use and perhaps a prayer team of people. Perhaps you want to join me in that and praying for those individual names. This is what I'm convinced about. If we pray, God answers. And if we start being really intentional about prayer, about individuals, not just God save the lost. No, save Bob. Save Rachel. Save whoever it is in your life that, that needs Jesus. And not just pray that somebody would go and reach them. That, but last week, you know, that we prayed that the Lord of the harvest will raise up workers. And then what is he going to do? He's going to send you out to be the answer to the very prayer you've been praying. Pray that God would use you to love somebody as long as it takes to share the gospel with them and then see them through. I, I am absolutely confident we're going to celebrate this year some names who are coming to faith because of your prayers. You can pick up those resources. I've also got the uh, door hangers. If you didn't get those last week, uh, several uh, of you, I know, took them. This last, Over 400 of these were taken out last week. Actually, 460 because we ran out and we did some more. Uh, we're taken out. We did some in this particular neighborhood as well. Take this. This is what this says. How can we pray for you? And you just put that on a door. You don't have to knock or anything. It's like low level, but we're letting our community know we're praying for them. And I've never had anybody turn me down for prayer. Just put that on there, and it gives them a way to respond back to the church, you know, if they've got a prayer request, and we can pray for them. 
If they would like church contact, we're going to be right on, uh, on there to, to communicate with them. Uh, I may need some females as well to join us because if a lady calls and, and says, I just need some prayer for this thing, I would like some ladies to go and minister to that young woman or, or older woman who needs prayer. We're going to minister our community and love them fully. But we're going to pray for the Lord of the harvest and that we're going to become not about me, but about we as God works through us. Last question, I'd be remiss not, if I didn't ask it. It's one thing to say I'm a disciple following Christ, but the question is, are you truly a disciple of Christ? Perhaps you've been around the church for a long time, whether here or someone else, but you've never surrendered your life and truly become a follower of Jesus. You have a Christian label, but you don't have a, a life that, that supports a following. Let me challenge you today to give your life to Jesus. You can make it right, right now. Just say yes to him, repent of your sins, and trust him that he is the only one that can save you.